Hello and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My other host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is away from the podcast for a couple months due to work. So while he's gone, I'm doing a series of episodes with guest hosts, as well as doing some audio and text posts of my own. And I'm very happy to welcome on my uh, guest host for this week. Welcome to the Natacast, Gretchen Felker-Martin. Thanks so much for coming on. I was really looking forward to having you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I remember first reading your stuff during season eight of game of thrones you know the elder days as it kind of feels now back when game of thrones was still on the air and i remember just really enjoying your uh your writing about it and enjoying your the the taste you were bringing to it because you were writing about it from a a horror perspective especially regarding the 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 long night episode i remember really liking your piece on that and i thought that was great because that was uh kind of an under appreciated filter on the show a lot of the times and i think on the books too is i mean i think what people really love about that book series and the show is the immediacy and the 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 memorable uh, sudden vivid changes in tone and pace in a way that was really reminiscent of horror as much as if not more than high fantasy and i remember really loving your your pieces on season eight in that regard i'm sure a lot of people know george martin started as a pulp sci-fi and horror writer and i think that's extremely evident in a song of ice and fire especially it's uh it's a little less so in the show just because so much of that that stuff is sort of out in the weeds in the books and naturally gets cut things like the story of the rat cook which is just this awful little parable about cannibalism and body horror or the pseudo myth of the lord commander of the night's watch who marries an other and reigns from the night castle and then of course there's you know the the sort of battlefield horror of the targaryen lineage and the the torture porn you know i mean those people stage you could fill out a fair few saw movies with them (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's that uh, that skin crawling level of detail you get with uh with certain of the, the targaryen backstories and then, yeah, you get the really suggestive ghost story elements in the North. And you can you can tell how much uh, George R. R. Martin loves the the spooky campfire aspect to those stories. And I think you can tell how much he loved those stories at an early age. And then, of course, there's the House of the Undying, which is just like chock-a-block full of horror imagery and evokes everything from like David Lynch with the image of all the deformed dwarves feeding on the woman to you know like classic vampire stories with the the council of warlocks and the undying but it's just uh it's all this phantasmagoria i mean martin is so good at (laughs) i guess for the uninitiated painting a word (laughs) picture there's such lurid descriptions of disgusting things which run throughout the yeah. whole story. I mean, uh, you know, I was talking about the cannibalism ghost story earlier, the story of the Rat King. That eventually manifests. That shit happens in the books. Like, a man oh, yeah. cooks and eats a guy's sons and makes sure that the father eats them too. And it's it's that, that range of different kinds of horror that I love in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, where, yeah, The House of the Undying is really Baroque and very visual and... There's obviously the huge uh, drug fiction uh, influence on that, very much of, you know, George's throwback to the 60s and 70s in a lot of ways. But also, yeah, also it feels like he's he's imitating, uh, he's imitating, you know, paintings at a, at a certain certain portions of that chapter. Absolutely. Goya is all over it. Yeah. And then it's, you get to the, the brand elements and it's this, there's these these body horror elements which are which are kind of submerged beneath the you know very classical Arthurian uh, brand storyline. Yeah, and then you get like the the fray pies with Wyman Manderley where he's he's doing Shakespeare and he's he's lending his kind of gothic touch to it. So it's he's he's constantly changing up what he's doing, and I love that. And there's you know there's so much like Poe esque material, uh, specifically like. Uh, he echoes the mask of the Red Death more than once with the pale mare running through the 
I can't remember exactly what nation they are, but the slavers who are encamped outside Marine. Yep. Yeah, they, that's what Danny hears about, that the cities are burning and the Pale Mare is coming. And you get that vibe, too, with the um, with the Shadow Baby and with the Stannis and Renly, because Renly's got all the colors around him. Very Legea. Yes, and then the the shadow comes stalking, which is also just a, a great... I, I, I love uh, Catelyn as a POV on horror stuff, because Catelyn's got the, the deep, the bone-deep conviction that everything is going to work out for the best. And she's just bring it, bringing that to every single scene, and then every single scene unravels it. So you get her pleading with Stannis and Renly to stop fighting over their toys, and then she has to watch one kill the other one. And then the, the Red Wedding from her eyes specifically... Is so devastating because she's like, we got the bread and salt. Whew, I don't have to read any of these signals. I don't have to worry anymore. And then it's just it, that ugh, that 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 collapse is just is so, so devastating. And I love that. Yeah. And that's more of that same kind of like Titus Andronicus flavored horror. Yeah, that uh, that that collapse of institutions is, is very palpable with that. And then, yeah, and then like, but yeah, as you say about the House of the Undying is more George's nod to kind of storytelling itself and, and fakery and and, uh, and theater itself. It's, I mean, it's interesting to compare him to older fantasy writers in that regard, and you can see him wanting to, like, punch up Tolkien and make it move a little quicker and make it more cinematic, which isn't even necessarily criticism of those older stories, but he wants to, he really wants to viscerally grab your attention. We haven't even talked about zombie apocalypse, which is the most obvious element. The villains of right. this of this series are literally an enormous endless horde of walking dead just just hovering on the margins which is great that they're in, they're introduced at the beginning and then you have to wait along with everyone uh, as, they, as they as they creep closer and then yeah that i remember very specifically reading the first time the from sam's perspective when they attack uh north of the wall and it's done where it's, it's, it's after the battle and he's just sobbing with every step he takes and like flashing back to what happened. And it's just, it's this just agonizing, like, ugh. I mean, it, it feels like, you know, what happened anytime an army is in retreat, which is its own kind of horror scenario in and of itself, where no one has food and your boots are falling apart and the snow is in your face. And the, you know, the, the, the more experienced soldiers are leaving you behind. And then you add in that, as Sam says, they are behind us. They are still behind us. They are taking us one by one. It's got this 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 bitter, resentful edge of unfairness, which is something I always love in horror, where you have to like, you have to read something that that makes you want to just fix it in like a I don't know. I have like a I guess it's like a kid in a schoolyard. Like that's not the rules kind of aspect when I read horror. Sometimes it's very childish, but it comes to the fore. I'm like, that's not that's not fair. You're not you you know and. That that kind of bitterness is what he wants to evoke, I think. Yeah, I think he does have a very particular brilliance there. And so much of that ties into the way that he shows war as self-perpetuating in maybe the most like bluntly obvious fantasy way that he could, which is that when you murder someone, they get up and murder you. <laughs> That's true. And that you just you just swell their armies. There's a wonderful image in the show during the Hard Home episode, which is maybe the show's best horror sequence. Just really astounding. When the dead are literally raining off a cliff to attack the village below. And they're splattering all over the rocks and ice and then dragging themselves back up into some semblance of, of functioning form and, and continuing. And there's just this horrible unending quality to it yeah that 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 persistence is just is just hideous and that carries through the whole episode obviously right to the end when he when he lifts the army back up and it's yeah it, it's a direct critique of the the military leaders there's the the famous bit in the books uh the broken man speech as it's called where a wandering priest talks about his experience during war and just the the relentless just meaninglessness and shittiness of it all from the perspective of the guys fighting it and he talks about how, you know, whoever you were fighting for first, they died and someone else comes along and says, you're his now. And that's basically what the White Walkers do, just in an exaggerated fantasy horror way. They just come along and then you're in their army and you don't have a choice. And there's there's 
And there's that bittersweet aspect, too, of living with your ghost that comes up a lot with a lot of characters where they're surrounding themselves with their dead. And we first meet, like, Ned Ned and Robert Baratheon in the crypt, unable to move on from everyone they've lost. And there's so many characters that work like that. So I think the zombie apocalypse angle works in that way, too, that, like, you you are a bunch of people who are just living with with dead people. You care more about corpses than you, you'd care about your kids or the country or anything. Yeah, I would say the the character who does not dwell on the past and really values the life that is now and the the people who are around her is probably Cersei. <laughs> it's true. That's I mean that's what that's a great way of capturing Cersei's appeal as a character. I think I guess is her her immediacy or her living in the present more than Right. Most she she doesn't well. miss anyone. You know, if you're dead, you might as well have never existed. That's a great point. That's true. Like, not even her mother, really. Like, Jamie has a sad little dream about his mom at one point in the books. But Cersei, yeah, even right down to the best friend that she casually threw in a well when she was 10. Like you do. I don't, you know, who didn't do that? But, you know, she, even her, it's just it's just like it never happened. That just feels intense when like when you put it next to people like like a, like Maester Pycelle, who's just always referring to things that happened back when he still mattered. <laughs> You know, so many of these characters, they're living in this this sort of shrunken, dwindled age. The dragons are all dead, so they think, and the houses are all snapping at each other's heels and fighting over what amounts to nothing. And so it's very natural that they're all spending all of their time thinking about the people who used to be and how great they were and how special everything was then. You know, their world is actually materially reduced. Yeah, and it's, it's especially Westeros compared to, I mean, we only get a hint of glimpses of other parts of the world, but they're inevitably doing better, or if not better, because a lot of them are, you know, obviously slave empires, but there's there's a sense of like, we're still at our peak and, and self-imposed grandeur and magnificence that's just not in the attitudes of anyone in Westeros. And, you know, I mean, obviously slavery is a horror but in many ways i don't think it's materially different from what's going on in westeros which is serfdom yeah and there's i mean the whenever the the uh, peasants in westeros try to assert their rights they're either ignored or brutalized so and then you you know you keep going even further west further west of westeros and you get the iron islands which is just like the most the most miserable pathetic existence whether it's just like, you know, pirates who tell themselves they're awesome, but are just stealing from fishermen and barely eking out this existence. Yeah, so of course they, they retreat to a, a glorious past. And you see that, I think, play out with the with the royal family, with the Baratheons, uh, each one in their own way, which I, I really enjoy. Those, those brothers as kind of this perfect triangle where you have Robert, who used to be just like the king who, you know, comes in a Lego box, you know, like he's just like the king, the credits roll over. That's That's who Robert was. And then he had to wake up and keep going and like be married to Cersei and govern. And he just couldn't, you know, just. Uh, it's like uh, George's famous quote. What was Aragorn's tax plan? Right. And Robert's just got nothing. And um, and then you got the the youngest brother, Renly, who just kind of wants to reboot Robert. And just kind of like, you know, I'm I'm still young. I'm still perfect. We'll just do it again. And then in the middle, you have Stannis, this 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 perfect, like, sour rock of a middle child, just staring resentfully at them his whole life. Pure rejection that then, like, he comes to, like, like the flavor of. I just, I love those, those kind of characters who have these wonderful self-imposed walls because they've just gotten so used to it. And that's a lot of these characters, too. Um, which is how they talk themselves into doing terrible things usually, which I think is is a very relatable aspect. That's what, you know, that's what pushes like Stannis or Tyrion or Theon over the edge is just like, well, no one, they hate me anyway. They've already decided I'm the worst person they've ever met. So what possible option would I have other than to Why that? should I stop yeah. myself? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have, uh, yeah, the 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 human sacrifice angle that comes up a lot with, with the, the Stannis and Melisandre plot and a couple others and there's i don't i mean there's there's a mixture i guess of like religious symbolism in that and then there's just the the sheer horror of it i mean do you like when like when Stannis burned Shireen on the show do you think that was uh 
like a lot of people had in, in you know very diverse opinions to that as they do with stuff in season eight. Do you think that was uh, well executed as a as a horror scene in the show? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was tremendous. I remember the first time that I watched it, I started to cry about halfway through when I realized he was going to go go through with it. And I, I mean, I knew as soon as he sent Davos away that he was going to do it. The way that he just stands there dead and you realize like this man who has made all of these stupid rules to justify his own bitter entitlement is going to do this even though it totally destroys his own ability to function because he thinks it's fair and he deserves it. Yep. It's the, it's, I mean, like I was saying about Catalan earlier in that, that it's the, the poking at the rules and the, the, the self justifications for, for uh, going down this path that leads you to horror and that kind of that, yeah, that's that seductive logic that works on him from Melisandre in, in contrast always to Davos. Similar to, to Ned and Robert, where it's like, you're the one dude who, who knows I'm not a monster, or who rem- remembers the one part of my soul that I used to have. So I gotta, you know, but, but Robert ultimately keeps Ned around and Stannis sends Davos away. And one thing I always thought about Stannis strongly, especially after the show, was how, how well he sets up Daenerys in a lot of ways, or sets up how... Daenerys is going to look to other people who don't know her especially well. And that's something uh, I saw you talking about on Twitter a couple of days ago. And I think is a really interesting thing about Daenerys specifically is, is perspective and what it means to her to come over to Westeros when to people who didn't read the books. You know what I mean? Like no one in Westeros read a Game of Thrones and knows her struggle. So that's going to matter. Right. To them, she's... She's the Ottoman Sultan appearing at the walls of Constantinople. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's this teenage girl with nuclear dinosaurs and an army of eunuchs and Mongols. Yeah, your 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 worst nightmare in a lot of ways. And I think it's interesting that we haven't seen Danny in the book specifically from any other POV characters because she's so isolated over on the other continent. And because even when other characters more recently in the story are getting over there, there's, you know, she still hasn't been seen because she she took off on her dragon and she's going to, you know, be over with the Dothraki for a while. So it's going to be a shock, I think, when, like, you know, we see Danny through, you know, whatever, Cersei's POV or someone else who's in Westeros. And we realize that we're, we're seeing it from the perspective of someone who didn't, wasn't there for the wedding to Drogo or when she, you know, uh, was, was uh, liberating Astapor. But we're going to see it from the perspective of someone more like Miri Mazdor uh, in the first book, who tried to make clear to Danny that, look, from from my perspective, you're the you're you're the war criminal, not not the usurper Robert Baratheon that you have as your your permanent villain justifying everything in your mind. Miri Mazdor is a an excellent little gateway into another kind of horror that the series does pretty often, which is like pregnancy-based horror and helplessness horror is sort of the Rosemary's baby stripe and the inherent apocalyptic connotations it has. I mean, when Daenerys is pregnant with Drogo's child, according to the the Dothraki cultural mythos, she's going to have the baby that will literally rape the entire world. It's that, that same intensity you see with Melisandre and the shadow babies. Uh, under Storm's End, there's a sudden bloom of light, and then it's it's uh, crawling out from between her legs, and she's she's panting, and she's shining, and there's that that line of her having both agony and ecstasy, which is something that that uh, George brings up a lot uh, with this particular theme, whenever he talks about you know moons breaking apart and and pregnancy and childbirth symbols like that. There's always that combination. The the tone is so often this kind of dread for what might happen, but this kind of allure of the power itself and you see that with the with the birth of the dragons where it's like it feels like the world is ending like there's a funeral pyre and it's collapsing but but danny feels more alive than she's ever felt and everyone else around her feels the same way i think it's a real credit to how immured in the traditions of fantasy storytelling audiences have become that a lot of people read that scene as triumphant it's the sacrifice at the end of the wicker man working Oh, that's great. That's true. It's that's, saying it's, that Summer Isle and the peasants were right to put him in there and <laughs> give him the most agonizing death possible because now their world's going to be great. 
Oh, God, that's perfect. Because, yeah, I mean, that is... When you compare that scene at the end of book one and the equivalency at the end of season one to other big magical moments in the story, but also with the backstory, it is it is like the exception in that it works because all the other ones don't. Like there's the backstory event of Summer Hall that we still don't know much about, but it was clearly Egg from the Duncan Egg backstory. He grows up to be Egg in the fifth, trying to bring dragons back and failing horribly and killing a bunch of his family. There's one dragon prince who drinks wildfire because he thinks he'll turn him into a dragon. And then, of course, there's Danny's delightful dad, the Mad King, who sets up basically a a nuclear apocalypse waiting to happen under King's Landing with his wildfire because he thinks that when Robert wins, he'll turn himself into a dragon. And yeah, I think you you, you hit it exactly right. That would make that's the dynamic of the Danny scene is that in her mind, the fact that it works is what retroactively justifies it even though the content of it is still as horrifying or even more so than any of those other previous ones she burns a slave that her husband's army raped for the for the temerity of her striking back and that's that's danny you know the whole show that was danny think about what happens with with mossador her her former slave underling who kills a master that she has in her custody without her permission and she has him beheaded in public and then acts confused when the whole city turns on her i don't think she understands that she's revealing her hypocrisy that it's not you don't have masters it's okay now instead there's me right and there is this very specific and this is where i think that this is where the the magical angle i think in the the even the more esoteric angle in the books help some is that Danny thinks of herself partially as a god. And like and part of me is like, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> because like there is crazy magical stuff happening around her all the time, but it also leads to her complete detachment from the consequences of her actions. And she ends up feeling more and more frustrated by that and more and more convinced that the solution to that is to cut through the Gordian knot at every possible turn. Right, it's the classic, uh, her dilemma between staying to rule in Marine and the dragon. You know, it's it's Hazea's bones or Drogon. The exactly. ugly reality that will hamstring your violent impulses and your will to impose your laws on everyone around you. Or ignoring it in favor of doing whatever the fuck you want because your power and grandeur justify themselves. Yep, and because the the House of the Undying, you know, said I was special, so I have to therefore do whatever it needs to be special. And you know, one thing I like about her story in Marine is that it emphasizes that really that that governing, especially under those circumstances, just doesn't make you feel special, and that's not what it's designed to do, really. And and dealing with people who are objectively evil and that is an interesting aspect of her story that i do think leads to i do think leads to a lot of confused reactions maybe where it's like she is like yeah she is up against not just like individual slavers but in like this interconnected continent-wide slave economy that is is an unimaginable horror show and no one else really has an interest in doing anything about so the temptation to act is super strong but, I mean, this is where, you know, you lead to the obvious foreign policy uh, uh, parallel where it's, you know, the the uh, the pottery barn anecdote, as they say, from what Colin Powell said to, to George W. Bush. Once you break it, you bought it. All these people, their hopes and dreams, they're all yours. And, and they're your responsibility at that point. And that's where the ball gets dropped. Yes. You know, it's it happens as as soon as she is in Marine and hearing rumors from Yunkai and Astapor where now there are all these petty dictators springing up and declaring things in her name. And there's just, there's nothing behind her initial impulse to right the wrong. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's yeah. I couldn't have put it better. That's that, that's that, that reveal of a lack of, of substance, which you also, I think see with, with, uh, with Stannis, whenever he gets going, on the crusade of I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wipe out everyone in King's Landing, which has the appeal because the people in charge of King's Landing really do suck <laughs> because they re- 
they really are the Lannisters who are the worst people. So like when when Tyrion says at his his trial, his Peter Dinklage's big monologue, I should have let Stannis kill you all. There is a catharsis to that because he's like, you're all filthy liars. But as we see with all these characters, there's the there's the collateral damage and the kind of endless justification with that where you end up with. Yeah, like you were saying about Stannis burning Shireen, like, dude, that's your heir. Like the whole point of this, I thought was that you were going to uphold the Baratheon name and kick, you know, Joffrey the Bastard or Tommen the Bastard off the throne and put the rightful line back in place, but you just set it on fire. So what was all that for? And Danny's having the same revelation come. And it's it's ultimately kind of revelatory of something that's true about both Stannis and Daenerys. They do not care about the law. They care about a very childlike sense of fairness. The law is boring and huge and uh-huh. unwieldy and doomed to be an enormous collection of half measures. Fairness is your feelings filtered through some cheap rationalization. And that's what they have. Every time Stannis enacts a policy, it is just a petty little reactionary sociopath. It's nonsense. <laughs> Well, and it's, yeah, I think you're right that it's not rooted in legalism. It's rooted in their own very personal sense of of injustice. And that's, and part of me is like, well, yeah, that's, that's fine. Like a lot of people hold over resentments with their family and with their childhood. But the problem is you have, you have too much power for that. Like the, the problem is you're working out your petty grievances on the land and people like, yes, Stannis, your brothers were assholes. Like objectively, that's true. But for most people, when their brothers are assholes, you know, you don't talk to them anymore, hopefully, you know, or you, you have to work it out, you know, in a screaming match at a Thanksgiving 20 years down the line or something. You, you don't have armies at your command that you then have to work out your deals with each other. And Danny has, you know, her, 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 her personal exile and her alienation from her family, I think, is really sympathetic because she just doesn't have a home or anyone to talk to who knows anything about who, where she comes from. But you add dragons to that and it gets really, really dangerous. Yeah. But, you know, that's so much of the show is taking these and, the, and of course, the books is taking these people who are struggling with emotions that we all struggle with and giving them things that no individual should have. I mean, if you were to look at Daenerys from a clinical standpoint and say, okay, we're going to take this product of incest who whose father raped her mother repeatedly. And so she definitely has trauma even before she is born. Like you can traumatize a fetus and it has obviously happened. Right. You have this, yeah, Nabokov character. Yeah. We're going to put her under the care of her brother, whose origin is the same, and who grows up being told how important he is while having no authority whatsoever. And being placed in constant jeopardy by and from the people who are supposed to take care of him. And then we're going to sell her to Idi Amin. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's where the audience kicks in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is just like, this is a person whose life is a nightmare. She's still thrashing around in the grip of things that happened decades ago. And she doesn't understand hardly any of it. How how could anyone expect her to do anything but vent those feelings as soon and as flagrantly as she can? That's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... So, so then, you know, that dances around the obvious question of why did people react to season eight the way they did regarding the They're stupid. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've come to a point where I just, if you think that it was unjustified or rushed or a betrayal of the character, you are incapable of analyzing media and I'm not interested in your opinion. <laughs> right. I, I feel like there's such there's a relationship to character that is such at, at odds with story structure where it's like you're relating to a character like someone you know who's going through rehab, which is just weird for me. Yes, it's very weird. 
Because, like, then the outcome is going to seem very strange to you when it's not, you know, looks like we made it, plays over the loudspeaker. Or, like, I picture, like, um, there's the famous shot of, like, of Nicole Kidman walking out of the divorce office with Tom Cruise. And she's, like, got the hands up. And it's like, that's what they want the Daenerys ending to be, which I I just, that seems so... And, and like, you know, that's got, that's got nothing to do with, with hating the character. It's just, it's like wanting Macbeth to win. It's just like, it's like a, it's just a, like a category error, I feel like. I don't, I don't really know how else to describe it. It is people who are incapable of analyzing media on its own terms. My good yeah, friend Shanti Collins wrote a great article called Bad Fans. And it's about the ways in which people bring the wrong skills to bear on fiction, especially on television and film. And it's, it's very illuminating, you know, fiction becomes essentially a personal experience that is all about the feelings you're having and the things that you want. And those ultimately like, yeah, that's part of it. That's sort of where fiction forms, but it has no bearing on what should happen. That that's not a thing. (laughs) Exactly. And that is where specifically, I think this story activates a lot of that uh, particular nonsense, because the the books are incomplete, which just, I think, also is just driven people a little crazy, because there is this uncertainty where no one can be right as far as that particular part of the story is concerned. And then you have uh, the show being the geared around unexpected things happening and twists and that being the big marketing for it. And then I think people reacting to it in that regard, but then, yeah, but it's, it's frustrating because as you say, like your, your, um, your immediate visceral reaction to a story is, is what is where you begin. And then you go, isn't that interesting? Ideally. You know, I feel like so much of our relationship to art and media and, and popular culture is mediated through emotions like disgust or comfort. And like you said, when you stop there, you have beheaded your ability to experience art. That's, that is the beginning. That's where your thought starts. The next part is why am I disgusted? Why does this make me feel comfortable? And I think that those two streams cross very dramatically with Daenerys, who is this beautiful, victimized waif who is gorgeous and white and a fantasy princess. And also she's someone who murders slaves and rape victims and her own handmaiden. In just like horrible, sick, grotesque ways. I mean, she she tortures people essentially at a whim all the time, constantly. And people are somehow, they have the gall to be surprised that this woman snaps. And I, and I think a lot of it was, is the, the story structure of, oh, everything sucks in Westeros, but wait for Danny to get there. Like for people, I, I think people felt like that's what the story structure was. Which requires ignoring what Danny's. I mean, it makes Danny's story into a holding pattern, basically, and requires kind of ignoring the actual content of what's happening while she's over there. And it also, and I think this is something that came clear after season eight. It's kind of a parallel to the White Walkers, who are also, you know, on the margins, waiting to show up. And but that's, you know, that's not a positive thing. So you know, maybe if we thought about it from that perspective, there's there's the 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 desire for her to 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 right the wrongs of Westeros and that George R. R. Martin likes the wanting to see people punished and then you see how it looks thing like he's really fond of that move. I'm gonna That's make you want it. something so bad and then I'm gonna show it to you so intensely that you hate it and you hate yourself right. for and having that. What you just it. described that's that's not a fun experience. Like you know, no, what? it is not. They're not. I would not call them fun books. I mean, they're entertaining. But if you read them closely, they will make you realize some uncomfortable things about yourself and your relationship to art. Yeah, which I think is, yeah, overall a positive thing. And especially when it's done, especially when it's done so with with uh, a lot of emotion and with in a way that draws you further into the character. Like Jamie is a great example of that, where at first Jamie seems like the most stereotypical 
villain you could imagine. Like he's walked out of an '80s movie or something. Right. He's an anime. He's an evil anime prince. He's there for you to go boo whenever he walks on screen. And and you know, obviously those characters have their function. And it would have been fine if that's just all he was. But then you have this expansion of him once he's once he's reduced to this humiliated position. And there's something wonderfully uncomfortable about realizing that his his more complex backstory and his more sympathetic stuff is perfectly consistent with everything we knew about him but we just didn't care because we just didn't care because he seemed like there was nothing more to him than that or even more so with theon where you know theon murders children just to look cool and be proud of himself and you you of course want to see something horrible happen to him and then you meet him after that's happened and you realize that there was no it's uncomfortable because it makes you realize there is no punishment that's going to make it okay. Like, you know, there's nothing you can do to Theon. Justice doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, it's right there in the title. It's a song of ice and fire. And George Martin is not the first time you see that fucking shadow monster crawl out of Melisandre's vagina. Your illusion that this is about a duality of good and evil should be over. Right, because she's the one talking about it uh, as exactly that with the... Uh, Right. The the yeah. priesthood of R'hllor does not seem uh, cool. <laughs> well, I mean, they're from Mordor, basically, once you hear more about them. You know, they're from the they're from the eastern land of the of Ash and Shadow. And yeah, and it's the, the self the justification is we're, we're going up against the White Walkers. And Robert's justification is I'm going up against the Mad King. And Danny's justification is, it, and that's that is interesting to think about because so much, obviously, of fantasy is about is about you know the the unconquerable enemy who kicks the plot off, and it is interesting to consider what you do once that's beaten. And looking back, that is something I like about season eight structure is that halfway through, the the unimaginable enemy from beyond the dimension is destroyed, and then it's like I guess we yeah. gotta live with each and other. I- I love that structurally. I personally, I never thought that the show made the others themselves work. I I did not like their screen presence. I didn't care for the design. And I just, I thought they were mishandled. You know, the Night King never felt menacing to me after his initial appearance where he resurrects the dead at hard home. That was great. And then from there, it's just sort of nothing. Um, but in the books, they're fucking terrifying, and they're they're beautiful. That's something that George has emphasized when he's writing to the artists: is that the others look like elves. That's what they're supposed to look like. Is to you know the long and skinny and kind of otherworldly, and that's also what the Valyrians and the Targaryens kind of look like too, and the Lannisters too. I mean these. He has a really keen sense for the ways in which people will excuse evil if it's done by beautiful people. That's very true. That's something that that Terry Pratchett wrote about. I forget which one it was, the Discworld books, where he broke down all the words that we use to describe elves and beautiful people and how they all kind of mean like actually terrifying things. Like, you know, they mean like they're stunning you or fascinating you or compelling you. And he says like, yeah, no one ever says elves are nice. (laughs) Right. And that, you know, of course that, that you can compare that to uh to the the real world lords and ladies as well the objection to the mad king was in part that he was setting people on fire but also that you know he was howard hughes looking and no one likes that in their king it's not super great that we're all bowing down to this dude who shits himself and won't cut his nails because that doesn't make us feel special and that's the whole point of everyone being here and that's you know that's something that that tywin understands very well as you see that with his whole career is that as long as I make everyone else feel like they're part of something awesome and tough, I can get away with really anything I want to do. Which, like, Stannis doesn't understand that. Stannis is like, I should, just get a- I should just get away with it. Why do I have to go through this whole thing where I make people like me? That's a stupid part of the process. Right, that's, you know, that's again, Stannis continually butting up against reality. The fact that it isn't fair doesn't matter, and he refuses to see that. There's the younger kids. Do you think, um... What, do you think the the younger Starks are effective as characters because George Martin has said he has trouble writing them sometimes and they are aged up in the show. Do you, um, do you think they work as well as the more tortured adult characters or 
What do you think? Personally, I I prefer them in the books. I mean, I I really enjoy Maisie Williams as Arya. I think that they did a good did a good job adapting her arc. But the books are so hairy and wide ranging. And I enjoy the Stark kids. I think that Bran and Arya have in some ways arcs that are a little more typically fantastical. You know, they're both going on these journeys to become sort of heroic archetypes. And then in Martin's hands, that becomes by turns terrifying an alien or somber. Yeah. And they did a great job with this on the show, watching Arya become this unstoppable shape-shifting killing machine felt so sad yeah there's that child soldier aspect to her character right i mean Uh, she she becomes an accomplished brutal laser focused murderer because a little girl can't survive in that world yeah that uh that innocence she's not going to be allowed to keep which is uh what ned felt for his uh, sister liana in the previous generation god that was another thing the show did wonderfully is when ned is watching Arya practice fencing with sirio pharrell and uh-huh. he is listening to the clack of their wooden training swords and he starts to have ptsd flashbacks to the sounds of of metal crashing on metal oh yeah uh i i love that i love that aspect of Ned's character that they they brought out well in the show is just this 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 very this a veteran sensibility of barely keeping it together of, of I'm coming back to the city where they killed my family where everything I loved and hoped for was taken away and I brought my daughters back and he's just like he's just he's barely holding on yeah I mean imagine going to work in the room where your dad burned to death while your brother strangled himself trying to get to him and for uh, you know, a lot of people who don't have the last name Stark, that's just the reality of like, you know, living in King's Landing, there was that sack that, that Tywin led. And now that the city's just there and Tywin gets to hang out whenever he wants. And yeah, there's the, that, that brutality to it. But then, yeah, then, you know, uh, Cersei makes a lot of people angry and Cersei does horrible things uh, to to uh, the, the, the people of King's Landing and to other women very casually sending them off to Kyburn. But then when she gets punished for it, it's, you know, uh, so much of it is clearly how dare you attractive woman, you know, who makes me think impure thoughts, you know, how dare you wield power. And so there's just there's there's no as you're saying, there's no justice in that system. There's no way to properly make Cersei account for the horrible things she did do. It's always going to be filtered through that. And so and yeah, so you're left with you're left with frustration by the end of that. But that's I feel like that's such a productive feeling and reflects what the characters feel because like yeah i mean robert's rebellion was this perfect fantasy backstory where he rode to war against the mad king the you know the most obvious villain and now cut to 15 years later and they're either dead or sad or hopeless and you know why would danny be free of that right when when you look at the uh a uh, uh, song of ice and fire stuff in, in horror are there other like horror stories it brings to mind or they're like influences that you think are on george or just more more modern stuff that is 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 like that like if, if people like the horror stuff in a song of ice and fire what are what are some things you'd recommend oh boy i think that one horror author that martin really consciously channels is clive barker yes okay would be the sort of like intense and extremely intimate body horror and i do think that everyone should read the books of blood yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I remember reading the Books of Blood in, in college because I, I read, uh, I think it was called The Thief of Always. Yeah. Like it was like, yeah, one of his more like younger audience oriented ones. I remember reading that when I was young and that just like, it's like, you know, that that sent my skin crawling that book. Um, just this vampiric house that like leeches away kids lives, you know, very, you know, very, very classic. Um, but I just hadn't read a lot of books like it at the time. And then yeah, Books of Blood has this yeah, this 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 searing level of intimacy you can see in a lot of I think great horror scenes where you're 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 just brought closer and closer and closer to what's happening, and you you it's uh, and there's there's the kind of tragic romance to a lot of his stuff that I really like too. Yeah, I'm thinking particularly right now about In the Hills, the Cities, his mm. story about two towns 
who ritually all of the citizens of each one form themselves into giants made of their their interlocking bodies and have these ritual combats which you know is a a, a war metaphor story that is also the story of a, a relationship in trouble and the ways that we see ourselves as individuals and as parts of wholes. And those are things that Martin is constantly touching on the, the symbolic, the reality, the intertwining of the two. So Barker for sure. I, yeah, that, that intertwining of the, the personal and the large scale, I think is, is so key because because that gets back to what we were talking about, about the, the dangers of power and how you can't keep your own personal emotions out of it. Right. Because, I, I, you know, I think what I liked, what was powerful about horror for me reading as a kid was just I was, uh, I was a very just kind of interiorized kid and it took a lot to get me to talk uh, to other people and to, to open up emotions. And horror was valuable for me because it didn't really give me a choice. You know what I mean? And it like it it engaged me in a way that I um didn't like when other people <laughs> engaged me that way. Right. It's one of the physical genres like pornography. It wants a response from your body. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Or even even comedy, uh, in some ways. A lot of the horror actually you think about it like as a kid had a mythological angle like Stephen King. Uh, you know, reading reading stuff like it, which had a very strong fairy tale aura to it. Oof, yeah, and that was that kind of that kind of held my hand through some of it. And a Song of Ice and Fire has that too. Yeah, it was a, a very influential book for me. I read it when I was the same age as the kids who are its main characters, uh, which was a hell of an experience. I would also say that anyone who enjoys the horror in a Song of Ice and Fire should probably check out Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula movie, Bram Stoker's oh, Dracula. Hell yeah which is a similar kind of like ultra bloody, ultra horny maximalist, (laughs) like just here's here's another great quote from Sean T. Collins, which is that Bram Stoker's Dracula is like, if God, the Godfather was entirely the scene where they intercut the baptism with the mass murder. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's not even the climax. That's just the whole movie. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually, yeah, I haven't, I gotta rewatch that movie. I use I the whoops all crunch berries of of <laughs> horror movies. <laughs> yeah, that's that movie is so yeah that same that that baroque kind of or even rococo style that you see in some of of George Martin's horror scenes, and I, I love I love that aspect and that and there's something like really resolutely unfashionable about that in some ways, and that um. That just like I, uh, nothing makes me, fo- me feel more like like a like a cynical old person than imagining how if we ever get the winds of winter how it's going to uh, be reacted to, because that's that's going to be a grim, bleak, bloody book that does not make people feel good, and is also going to be closer to the show in many respects than I think a lot of people will be comfortable with. I mean, it's weird because so many of the people who have gotten maddest at the show have surely never read the books where things like that man at arms of Sir Gregor's when he tells the story of Sir Gregor raping the innkeeper's daughter and he tells it like it's a funny story. He's laughing and it's the most horrific, vicious thing. I mean, you were talking about having how going to work in the room where your family died is just life for everyone who's not a noble. We don't even know if that girl survived what Gregor and his men did to her, but her family still has to live there. Yeah. uh, Again, that persistence, that horrible. Those books are, are much more ruthless and painful than the show. It's true. And and I wonder if I wonder if just the the visceral impact of seeing it, you know, obviously with 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 actors and, and and effects just made it feel more awful for people. But like, yeah, like you were saying about that that scene. So a lot of the horror comes from the fact that it's it's not something Arya is even witnessing. It's something that's just being casually told in passing by a bunch of guys for whom this is not even the biggest part of their day. Right. 
That that was a funny thing their boss did. Right. Isn't isn't that classic Gregor is what they're <laughs> saying there. And the the normalcy of it is is what makes that so horrifying. And and the fact that they're talking about how Gregor wanted his change back afterwards. Cause you just to emphasize to the family, like you're you're worth this much and nothing more. And and that's it's so powerful because Arya realizes all at once, oh god, my dad lied to me about every single thing. And I, you know, I have, I am not prepared for this world at all. And, and that's, that's when she does her first assassination. It's like, and that's, oh, that's such perfect writing. Cause you, you know, exactly, exactly why she would do that in that moment. You're even maybe even cheering for her in that moment, but also she's going on that path to what you were saying earlier about, about becoming just like him, uh, uh, another faceless man assassin. Well, I think that's going to about wrap us up for this episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Gretchen. Uh, I had a blast. It's so much fun to uh, revisit a lot of these sequences, especially uh, uh, stuff I haven't seen for a while on the show or stuff that's going to be coming up in the main podcast and the books. So uh, tell everyone uh, where they can find all your work. First of all, thanks for having me on. This was a blast. You can find my work on Twitter. I'm at scumbelievable. And... There's links to most everything I write there. And my first novel, Manhunt, will be coming out from Tor Nightfire next February. That's so awesome. I can't wait. That's, that's going to be great. Thank great. you. Hope you like it. Absolutely. So thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can uh, rate and review us on iTunes, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.